This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so incredibly honored. I am so excited that we have our very first ever Blue Angel, John Gucci Foley. Welcome, John. Hey, Jake and Skip, glad to be here. And you know that statement, glad to be here, meant something very special to me as a Blue Angel. I guarantee you by the end of this podcast, it'll take on a deeper, richer meaning for everybody. Well, I know the Baptist family uh, knows you, John. I know that you came and spoke to us. But for those that maybe are not familiar with your background, would you tell our audience a little bit about your background? Absolutely. I, I was actually born in Germany. My dad was an army officer, and I wanted to grow up just like him. And I'm thinking, well, that's what I'm going to be. And then one day he took me to an air show. I'll never forget this 12-year-old boy. Look up in the sky, and I see these six magnificent blue jets that day. Uh, and I told my dad, I said, Dad, I'm going to do that. Well, it took me 18 years later, but I became a Blue Angel pilot. And, uh, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know the Blue Angels are, we're ambassadors of goodwill, fly over all the United States, so many of the uh, people listening here. Uh, our mission is to make a difference in people's lives. And that's why I think it's so connected to what each and every one of you do every single day is to really have this purpose higher than self. You know, I, I used to sign my autographs, you know, reach for your hopes and dreams because it's, it's about inspiring others. Uh, what I've done since then, though, is I went to Stanford Business School, uh, got three master's degrees, worked in venture capital, and uh, now I have the rare privilege of working with organizations like yourself. Like you said, I, I got a chance to speak to your leadership about high-performance teams and and what are those uh, those elements of operational excellence that we can tie in. And I use this this methodology that we had on the Blue Angels. I basically reverse engineered it and said, wait a minute, how do the best of the best get better? What are those not only processes, but what's more importantly, what's the mindset that you have to have? How do you get that connection, that alignment, that commitment from all your people? Uh, and uh, it's fun. It's powerful. Um, I also got this podcast called The High Performance Zone, and uh, uh, we get to talk to lots of people like yourself. So I'm, I'm just glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here, John. And you know anybody that's ever seen the the Blue Angels fly, you know, knows y'all are the very definition of a high performance team. But I imagine that didn't just uh, come out of thin air and and happen one day. Can you tell us a little bit of the the history of the Blue Angels and and how it evolved to be where it is today? Yeah, so the Blues, we're having our 75th anniversary this year. Uh, you can imagine that uh, getting all the old pilots together, it's going to be one heck of a, a celebration. The Blues are founded in 1946, and it came out of after World War II. Uh, Admiral Nimitz uh, said, you know, we're losing all these people. They're, they're leaving the military. We're still going to need highly qualified pilots like you need doctors and nurses and all this. So how do we keep the, the pipeline going? And he he took a, a guy named Butch Voris, who was a, a Navy ace, and he said, Butch, here's your, your task. Take fighter aviation, you know, dogfighting. It happens up high in the sky. Bring it down low to the ground where people can see it. Do it safely. And uh, and he said, tell me when you're ready. And so Butch uh, brought the team together, and that's what they created in 1946. Now, we've grown tremendously throughout the times, and really what it is is we like to take the best of the best and uh, and and show 
how a high performance team could actually get better every single day. And we just use the, the airplanes as that marketing tool, right, to get people's attention. But it's really more about um, being an ambassador of goodwill, being a professional, uh, being disciplined, uh, you know, building trust and making a difference in people's lives. Um, so that's what we do. That's amazing. And, and can you comment on, you know, just a little bit about what it takes to become a Blue Angel? What sort of training you had to go through? Yeah, good. So we're all Navy pilots. So if I think about, you know, your training, Doc, you know, um, uh, I start, uh, you know, I went to the Naval Academy and I selected aviation. Um, you know, you don't always get your first choice. Uh, I, I was fortunate. Uh, and then um, you could go into ships or subs. But once you get in aviation, you start your basic training. Right. And so it takes about two years to train a Navy pilot to uh, at least be a naval aviator. That's where you get to wear your gold wings. Um, and then uh, you probably saw in the movie Top Gun. Did you ever see that movie, Jake? Of course. Yeah, so of course. Yeah, I'm waiting for the, some of the real, I did some of the real flying in that movie. I mean, I just happened to be in the right place awesome. at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we filmed that off the Enterprise. And um, basically, after you get your basic training, you go to a carrier, right? First, you learn how to, you get your tactical, uh, you learn how to fight the airplane. I would think this is especially in medicine, right? You're not just a doctor, but you become specialized in something, right? And then in my case, I was flying fighters, uh, attack airplanes. So I'm out off the carrier Enterprise. Top Gun decided to do a, they decided to do a movie on Top Gun. So you'll see me in the opening scenes. And by the way, when you, uh, this December, you know, Top Gun Mavericks coming out. So stand by some great, great footage there. But basically what happens is you go, you deploy for three years in a tactical situation, flying jets on and off aircraft carriers, which is extremely challenging, um, you know, uh, thing to do. And then uh, at the end of that time, you rotate to a new a new job. They usually take the, the best people and they make them instructor pilots. So that's the thing. You go back to Top Gun, you go back to what they call the replacement air group, the fleet replacement air group, and you teach others how to become uh, you know, very, very, very gifted and tactical. So that's what I did. And then when you, when you, and then we select from the Blue Angels from the instructor ranks. It, mostly you come from, you have to not only uh, shown that you can fly very well and you survived. And we used to joke around, if you're even breathing after three years, you, you've learned something, right? Um, <laughs> two is more importantly, can you teach others? Because on the Blue Angels, we cycle through half the pilots are new every year, a third of my crews new every year. So you mm -hmm. have, it's not enough just to be good at what you do. You have to be able to lead and teach others. And so that's where we, we, we grab our pilots from. Well, John, let me ask you this question. Uh, and this is a question that Dr. Mason was going to ask, and unfortunately, he was not able to join us today. But, uh, you know, we think in healthcare a lot that, you know, healthcare is this very complicated, complex socio-technical system, and it's very easy to get absorbed with the technical. And I would think that, uh, you know, as a pilot, and as a fighter pilot, there's so much technical there. But when you talk about a team, there's also a social side there, you know, uh, and I think about some of the stories I've heard about the Blue Angels flying, you know, 10 inches from each other, maybe even closer and doing some of the stunts. And there's obviously a technical element to that. But talk to us a little bit about the social side and and how were those relationships built? Because if the relationships weren't built, it's kind of obvious someone could crash and die. How are those relationships built on the social side there? 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's so important in life. It's so important in healthcare and everything. It starts with connection, right? So we we connect first. The way we we select our team members is not just on your skill. That that's at that point it's easy. You can determine, you know, who's got the skills. It's more about the chemistry of a team. So when we select the new pilots, um, it's less about what role they're going to play. In fact, when you're selected, you don't even know if you're going to be flying in the diamond or the solos, which are actually different different tasks, right? Um, we're looking for chemistry. We're looking for connection. We're looking for that purpose larger than self. Um, and then we have to build that. So once you are selected for the team, we spend a majority of our times uh, not flying, but in the briefs and the debriefs. So our preparation before we go flying, the debrief after we go flying, it becomes a safe environment. You get a mentor. You're constantly being mentored and trained. Uh, we work out together, you know, pulling those G-forces, you need to be physically strong. So we, did, we didn't say, well, just do a workout on your free time. No, we built that into our schedule. And we said, this is part of our basic requirements, and we actually built Build chemistry. We uh, drove in together. Uh, we're on the road a lot together. So you're absolutely right. The social element, I call it the nonverbal contracts or covenants, those trust agreements that are built. That's what sustains the high performance. Yeah, that is, it's in stark contrast to a lot of what we do in medicine. Everything in medicine, all of our training seems to be done in silos, starting from, from med school, you know, individual med students study alone. Uh, for the majority of the time before they take tests, some some do some group work and some are uh, trying to incorporate more team based learning, but it's rare. And then in residency, you know, every you're on a, a a team based on your specialty, but the internists trained by themselves versus the surgeons, and, and we interact. Um, the main way we communicate with each other is through writing notes that go into the patient's chart, and then we read those notes. There's very Unfortunately, very little communication between us and, and others, except for through this electronic medium. Um, same goes with nursing staff and, and pharmacy staff. We, they're all just kind of in their own little boxes and um, it really makes it hard to form a high performing team. Um, and, you know, in your consulting work, you know, I, I know you've done a lot of work with hospitals and, and others that probably have those silos. You know, how can you, um, I guess, advise them on on ways they can break down those silos to to have a high performing team. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing is to think about, you know, your protocols. I call it the brief, right? So you're doing rounds. There's different elements. Take advantage of that precious time where you have human to human contact. And there's three things that I want to accomplish in those short meetings is one is a, a connection. So um, getting to know the, the people, um, two is alignment, and, and that's alignment on our goals and our, our strategies. And three is commitments. And these are what are, what are we going to actually do? But the key is, and you're all are very good at that. Healthcare is actually very good at that. I think the biggest gap is what uh, I call the glad to be here debrief. And this is actually the reason, the number one reason the Blue Angels can fly closer together and lower to the ground than any other team in the year consistently under change. Or, you know, just like you, I got changing conditions. The weather's changing every day. I'm in a different location. Uh, there's different patients. So really establishing a protocol where debrief isn't done just when there's a mistake, because that's, that's not, you want to learn, but you have to get into the DNA of an organization that this concept of 
growth, because that's what it really is. It's a growth mentality. It's a learning mentality is part of the protocol that you do uh, after an event. And, you know, surgery, you could do it in a stand up meeting right there from a, a you know, a more of a management level. You might do it once a quarter, once a month, once a week. There's different ways. But to me, the biggest key is getting that debrief into the protocol of what you just how you how you run an organization. And so that so now let's connect the dots between the social and the debrief, because I remember hearing you talk uh, several times. I listen to your podcast a lot, uh, John, and that that debrief sometimes really tough conversations have to occur, if I remember right. And those tough conversations are only going to occur if there's some form of a relationship. Am I saying that correct? Yeah, so the very first, I say there's five dynamics to creating um, an effective and really efficient debrief. The first is a safe environment. And when I say safe environment, I'm not just talking about the PPE and all the all the things that we're doing now. Okay, of course, that's a physically safe environment. I'm talking about a psychologically safe environment. Um, and that's built on respect. So to answer your question, the very basis of our debriefs was we had this, this respect of everybody there. Two is the second dynamic we said was check your ego at the door. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, do you think fighter pilots have big egos? I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, I've been told, you know, doctors, healthcare have big egos and that's okay too, because what we said is, of course, you're good. You wouldn't be in this role, um, but we need to check that at the door because it's about the we, not the I. And so Jake, as you were talking about the training, you know, yeah, in a pilot, you're still trained. You you have to fly. You need to know what your specialty is, but you also are integrating within this huge organization like healthcare, right? So that the team piece is incredible. So we said it's humility. You know, that's one thing we're looking for, humility in an individual. The third dynamic, which is is absolutely critical, is to lay it on the table. That's where that openness and honesty comes in. Um, you know, uh, these withholds that we see all the time. No, lay it on the table. The way we did that is we always looked at ourselves first. We point, pointed the finger inward first and said, hey, here's some things I could have done better, or maybe I missed something here. Um, you always looked inward first. The fourth thing was, is we had this ownership mentality. I, I call it, it's not just accountability, it's more personal responsibility that you own the outcome, whether it was your job or not, we all own the outcome together. Um, and uh, and then the, the last one and the most important one is, you have to build a glad to be here experience around it. This uh, idea of gratitude and gratefulness, because, hey, guys, we're all working hard. You know, I know how hard you all are working. So it's not about process. You know, the processes are there. It's not about protocol. Those are there. It's about building this gratitude and this mindset mentality. That's the secret sauce. Yes, Talk sir. to me about this, John. Uh, you know, I've been talking to a friend of mine recently, uh, uh, kind of well-known in the world of culture. His name is Dr. Edgar Schein. And he talked about that many times we get caught up with what he calls uh, content seduction. And we need to understand the context. And he said, what's so important to understand the context is situational awareness. Yeah. And uh, one of the best examples I ever heard about situational awareness was from you. When you were on stage at Baptist sharing with our 1500 leaders, you know, about uh, your story. And you shared a story about uh, flying over a town and looking for a, a certain windowsill. Maybe you could tell our audience a little more about that and tell us a little more about how you think about situational awareness. Sure, absolutely. So I think back to um, 
what you all do every single day and what I did is you have to have both. You have to be able to open up, see the big picture and focus down onto the very specifics. And so in the maneuver that I was describing is when the two solos come at each other, Thumper and I would come at each other at a thousand miles per hour closer. Okay. We start, by the way, that's a mile every four and a half seconds. Okay. So things are happening fast. Right. And, uh, and when you're out there, you know, at, at six miles, we're, we're apart. Okay. We're, we're, we're three miles apart. Uh, and, and it, the airplane's a little dot. So I have certain checkpoints. I have a three mile checkpoint, a two mile checkpoint, a one mile checkpoint. I mean, just think about in surgery or in any part of your day, right? What's the checklist? What's my checkpoint? Um, and I remember flying, we were over Buford, South Carolina. I was new at the time and my lead solo was giving me, I was opposing solo and he was giving me, um, contacts, right? Just so we talk about, and he said, uh, Gucci, that's my call sign. We all get nicknames, right? He says, that's the three mile checkpoint. Let's use the White House. Well, he didn't say that. He said the three mile checkpoint is the northeast corner, three story White House, upper window with the green shade. Now, <laughs> I'm looking down there. I got to be honest with you. I couldn't even find a house. And this guy wanted me to see the green shade of a window because he knew something I didn't. He knew how to focus his mind in that situation. I've learned how to do that. And you can be flying at 500 miles per hour, upside down, 100 feet off the ground and see the green shade of a window if you know what you're looking for. The, the, the human brain is that powerful. Uh, meanwhile, I've got a poser coming at me at 1,000 miles per hour closer, right? And, and so what I'm doing is I'm opening up. Make sure I don't hit something and I'm focusing down, I'm opening up, I'm focusing down. And uh, that's how I, I flew the air show dynamics. And I, I would suggest it's how we it's how we operate in our days every single day. That's amazing. You know, you were talking earlier about how much turnover you get a year. And I would imagine, you know, it takes a lot of trust to fly you know, directly at somebody coming at you at a thousand miles an hour. And you probably don't do that day one when they start with you. What, what's the process for getting them on board before you can start trusting them to do that sort of thing? How do y'all how do y'all do that? Oh, it's so beautiful. You know, Jake reminds me of my first flight with the Blue Angels. So, you know, I had been an instructor pilot. I'd flown, you know, hundreds. I had probably 300, 400 carrier landings. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, I show up to the Blues. I was fortunate to get selected. And I'm in these hollow grounds. And we're going to go out to our first flight, you know. And you're walking out to the blue jet. And you got your blue flight suit on, your gold helmet. And you're like, this was a dream when I was a kid, right? And so my lead says, Gucci, uh, we're going to get airborne. And we're going to practice turning the smoke on and off. And I thought, okay, that's fine. And But no, we, we practiced that for like 20 minutes, okay? Uh, just Just coordinating and getting in sync. And I'm thinking let's do something fun. Let's do something, you know, let, let's go, let's fly upside down. Let's do a dirty loop with your gear down. And he's like, no, fundamentals first. So what was interesting is we went back to the fundamentals and got totally aligned in and sync where I matched on his call. He'd say smoke on, boom, we both have to hit the switch. It was my job as the wingman to match him, all right, or her, right? So someone has to be the lead, someone has to be matching. Um, so the idea of, of the initial flights was we, we got back to basics and then we built onto it. So you didn't come at each other even uh, opposing first. Uh, he would fly behind me, I would practice my roll-in upside down. Did I go 180 degrees or 179? Or was it 181? You'd practice that. And then we would actually come at each other with large separation. By large, maybe I'm saying like 200 feet, which 
For most people, that's not a lot. For Blue Angels, that's a lot. And then uh, as we built that trust and as we built the consistency, we would bring it closer together and lower to the ground till where we're going by uh, at 1,000 miles per hour closer within a wingspan. Um, but you don't start that way. And it's a gradual progression. And I will say, too, is you need to have what I call verbal contracts. And that is very simply this. It's trust contracts. So my trust contract to my teammate was if I'm the lead, I'll be on the flight line, not five foot left or five foot right. I'll be on the inboard edge of that runway. I'll set the altitude. I'll make the timing correction. You as my teammate have one job. Miss me. I mean, it was that it was that simple. Uh, uh, but the thing was, Jake, is we we worked it up to it, and then we got to those levels of precision. No, that's amazing. That, that's a great story, and it's certainly not the way we we do a, do a lot of that in medicine. I mean, a little bit with training in residency, the surgeon, you know, the the first year surgeon is not going in and and doing the full procedure. They they work themselves up. But if a new person joins a practice who you don't know that much, and you're working together, you know, we, we kind of assume that you're all up to speed, which just doesn't seem to be the way to do it. Um, one of the other questions I have for you is, you know, you've talked a lot about, you know, building trust with your, your other teammates, the other, um, you know, aviators uh, that are flying, but you haven't talked as much about how the rest of the team, the support team uh, yes. fits into the high performance team. Can you touch on that a little bit? Well, thank you because, um, just like in healthcare, it's not just about the physicians or the pilots, right? You got a huge organization out there. Uh, on my team, we had 120 individuals that were part of the Blue Angels, and we're all Blue Angels, right? Um, and so we all had roles and responsibilities. It was interesting. I remember um, walking down to my jet. I'd have my plane captain, him or her, and I, I told them, I said, you know, you own this airplane. I just borrow it from you one hour a day. But for 23 hours of a day, that person took that ownership into and making sure that the hydraulics were good, the electrical, um, everything was ready to go. They would actually get up there and rub the windshield so there wouldn't be a, a bug on there because a bug can look like an airplane at six miles, right? So all the little things were, were accomplished. But here's the, here's the big key, Jake. When I walked up to my jet, uh, him or her that salute me and would shake hands. And, and then my crew chief would say, sir, the jet's ready to go. That's all they would say. I climbed into the jet. You know, my left glove was over my right glove, uh, just the way that I wanted to put it on. Uh, 126 switches in the exact correct position. They had counted the rivets on the ejection seat to make sure everything was set up exactly how I wanted it. They had gotten in early and it started the airplane. So um, what I'm trying to say is everything was ready to go. They did their same type of preparation, the same briefs and debriefs so that I could focus on what I needed to do. And what I realized was the, the most important thing was to say thank you, uh, was to, to, to connect. Um, they wanted to know what it was like to fly uh, upside down. And I would tell them <laughs> afterwards, I'd just take a few minutes and, uh, and share the stories. And that's where we built this high trust and high camaraderie. And and similar to how you were talking about new teammates earlier, bringing on and and having to gain that trust over time, I would I would assume that you know those people really well, and you don't have to go check behind their work to make sure that they wipe the bug off the windshield, or, or or how does that work so that um, you know you you know in the very beginning, how do you feel confident that they've checked everything they needed to check? Well, you're in trust every single day, and small things matter. 
So um, to answer your question, you know, when we show up, yeah, and I'm sure this is true in, in medical field and anywhere, I give you a certain level of trust just based that you're there, right? Um, I expect you, like you said, expect a surgeon to know how to do it, right? Um, but on the Blue Angels, we have to earn it every single day, and you earned it through your results. So to answer your question is, um, you know, I results matter, right? And that's where the debrief comes in. Um, and uh, And so... Uh, I think you have to also talk about the confidence in yourself and earning the respect of yourself, right? That inner trust, uh, that inner confidence. You know, if I had an emergency procedure, yeah, I had studied those, and I knew that that would happen. I, I could handle it. But I also said to myself, you know, if I come across something that I've never seen, um, I'm going to figure it out, right? I'm going to figure it out, and, and I'll, I'll trust my teammates to do their role in doing that. So, um, yeah, it was a two-way street. I think trust is always a two-way street. So, John, here's a question I have for you. You know, when I think about the little that I've heard about the debriefing process, and I think about what this podcast is about is performance improvement and trying to continuously improve the the care that we give to our patients. You know, part of that process of doing that is we are setting these really big goals sometimes, not not things that we can work on, but things that we must work on for whatever reason. And many times we're trying to understand where we're at, our current condition, and we're experimenting our way. Now, of course, we would never do an experiment that would put anybody in harm's way. I would think that in the Blue Angels, that those debriefing processes give you rich material to think about how do we experiment? How do we make this particular thing good? Because as an observer, I get to see a beautiful performance but that doesn't happen just by a coincidence, right? I mean, I, I would even guess there's probably been goals that were given to the Blue Angels that some of the pilots probably thought, how in the world are we going to be able to do that? Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, absolutely, Skip. Great great points. Um, first off, I, I remember when I showed up on the team and the closest I had flown a jet to another jet was 10 feet, happening in the movie Top Gun. And this team says, no, we fly at 36 inches. And that's just where we start. We get down to 18 inches. My first thought was exactly that was, how the heck am I going to do this? I mean, seriously, I was like, these guys are operating at a whole new level. Now there's a process to it. You know, there's a training process. There's a mentorship process. There's a leadership process. Uh, we're constantly working on that, um, both in the troops and 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 in the jets. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, the debrief becomes so powerful because it's not just done when things go wrong and you're not just looking for mistakes. If you do that, that's a downward spiral. OK, uh, you know, I know you have Sentinel events and all these things happen. And of course, you have to address those. You know, we have we have an airplane crash. We have, we address those in a more thorough way. What I'm trying to say when you debrief is that you celebrate your victories. OK, you celebrate what's going well. It's uh, you talk about that first. You talk about your feelings, not just your mistakes. You talk about, hey, I felt good about this or I didn't. You look inward. Was there any protocols that I missed that I just want to address? OK, but that's not that's the basic parts of the debrief. What you really want to do is do what you're talking about is then you get into the creative side. Then you get into the side of how are we going to implement? Um, you know, how are we going to because safety was always our number one concern, just like it is for you. Right. So we're addressing safety, but we're also looking at 
risk tolerance, right? And uh, and that's where you come up with the good ideas. I put in a new maneuver with the Blue Angels that had never before been done. It's called the Section High Alpha. And we talked about it in the brief and the debrief. And then basically, you, you ever see that maneuver where the airplane goes by really slow? It's kind of standing itself on its tail. Okay. That is hard to do, all right? It's easier to fly an airplane fast than it is in that position. And there's only no other team in the world uh, did it in section, okay? Uh, only mm -hmm. three other teams ever tried it as an individual. And I said to Thumper, I said, hey, let's let's see if we can do this in section. He said, do you think we can? I said, I don't know. So we put a test plan into place, right? And the first thing I needed to know is if I lost an engine, how much altitude was I going to lose? So I practiced that. I went up to altitude, pulled the engine back, and I practiced it. Um, and then we figured out we could do that safely. And we figured out the, the, more, the, the harder part was the rendezvous. So my point is we figured this out. It took us about two weeks. But that's not why the maneuver is in the Blue Angels. The actually maneuver I put in was in 1992. It's still in the Blue Angels today, and here's the other cool part. It's never been repeated by another demonstration team. No one else has been able to figure this thing out, okay? It's because I go back and I teach them, and, and we rewrite the protocols. But what we created was the trust amongst the team. It wasn't that we could do the maneuver. What I really needed to sell to my other teammates was not only this was safe, but it was going to be better for the whole organization because it required them to change. And that's what happens when we deal with change is we forget it's not just us that needs to change. How are we affecting the other parts of the organization? So let me ask another question kind of building off of that one. You know, in healthcare right now, it's very common if you go anywhere, probably in the world, but for sure in the United States and, and ask the question, do you have a safety huddle? And everyone's going to answer that question. Yes, they do. To me, I don't think that's the real question. I think the question is, how is your safety huddle working? And so did the did the debrief process itself ever get scrutinized and improved upon? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, Skip, you just nailed it is we can come up with processes, but what I like to show and teach, and first thing you have to do, I feel, is you have to paint the picture. People need to see what does an effective a high performance debrief look like okay um, and it involves your feelings it involves these things that we're talking about much more than just the, the the protocols right so the answer to your question is we're constantly refining the debrief we're constantly um looking at it is how can we create the human interactions first and that's why i start with the general safe generally how am i feeling was there anything that, that is out of parameters that we need to address. Uh, then I want to acknowledge another team member. It's part of the protocol. I want to acknowledge somebody. And then I, I actually uh, always end with this statement, glad to be here. And this is critical. You know, I'm wearing my shirt. Those of you, you know, I know this is audio, but I'm wearing a shirt that says glad to be here because that's the essence is that you're you're reaffirming to others in that debrief whether it went well or whether you could have done better, that you're really grateful. You're grateful for the opportunity. So to me, that's the key to uh, to adapting the debrief process is creating this glad to be here mindset as part of it. Well, John, I am so thrilled that you came on today and I'm getting ready to ask you a question that you ask every guest on your podcast. <laughs> and I feel honored to do this is uh, I get to see you on LinkedIn and with your new dog and you and your wife skiing. And I'm very envious of the life you're living. And so the question I have for you, my friend, is what are you, what does glad to be here mean to you on a daily basis? 
Well, today it means thank you, Jake. Thank you, Skip, for this opportunity. Uh, thank you for the listeners. Uh, to have the ability to just be in front of your audience and to share some experiences, uh, what I'm most grateful for is that you all take the action, that this actually helps other people's lives. Um, I'm also grateful to work with others who have a purpose higher than self. You know, if I, I think if there's anything, it's the healthcare field where we can combine excellence with caring. And uh, that's what I'm most grateful for. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for having me at Baptist. I look forward to coming back and being with you all again. Um, and and most of all, just keep doing what you're doing. It's It's a great life. Glad to be here. Thank you so much, John. Glad to be here. And and thank you, John. And I just have to ask one more question. Um, you know, sure. was Tom Cruise or Val Kilmer or any of them any good at uh, volleyball? Well, you know what? I don't. I didn't see the volleyball scene, but uh, I can tell you this: is they were actually really nice to work with. Uh, we were sitting in the Dirty Shirts wardroom, which is where you you eat after you fly, and uh, and Val Kimler and, and Tom Cruise are sitting at a table, and my buddies and I were sitting at another table. And finally, I, I think as Val Kimler came over and he said, "Hey, how come you guys haven't come over to say hi?" And and my buddy, who's smarter than me, looked up at me and said, "Hey, wait a minute! You're the actors. We're the real pilots. If you want to know something, get." your butt over here and of course they did you know, they <laughs> smiled they laughed they came over and we had yeah. a great conversation and and the other thing you probably don't know is that tom cruise we took him flying in the f-14 and yes he did pu puke and that's okay <laughs> uh because uh he, he he cleaned it up himself he's a great guy oh that's amazing well thank you well, one final comment because i forgot to plug it it's laying on my desk at home and highly recommend it uh tell us real quick about your book john Oh, yeah. So uh, I wrote a book called Fearless Success. Uh, get it on Amazon. Get it anywhere. It's it's already a bestseller. It took me 10 years to write. And it basically was trying to do exactly what we talked about here. Transfer those experiences that I had, not just in the Blue Angels, but in life, and uh, make them applicable in healthcare, in business, and in your personal life. So anybody that wants to uh, take their game to a whole new level, um, yeah, Fearless Success. Glad to be here. Thank you so much, John. Glad to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here.